Lord, I do thank you for the privilege we have to meet together. And Lord, uh, I pray that your word would seep down into our hearts. And Lord, it's not always easy to understand. Uh, and Lord, you don't always explain everything. But uh, Lord, open our eyes to what you would have for us this morning. Pray that you would fill us with your spirit. And Lord, wherever Pastor Bill is, uh, pray that you would be with him and Patty. You would keep them safe uh, wherever they are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Zechariah chapter 5. It's been a couple months since I did 3 and 4, so I'm going to give you a quick review. So Zechariah is one of the post-exile prophets, and he is 70 years or so after they have returned. And they returned under the direction of Cyrus the Great of Persia, who who gave them permission to return to their homeland. Uh, 50,000 people originally returned under Zerubbabel, who was the governor of uh, Jerusalem. And they were commanded again by Cyrus to not only return to their homeland, but to rebuild the temple. The building of the temple was met with many problems, uh, mainly from the Samaritans who gave them a lot of discouragement. There was a lot of trials back and forth um, that they received. So they were kind of discouraged in the work. And with that, for 15 years, the temple laid waste uh, with, well, didn't lay waste. It basically laid stagnant in its built, in its building. And during this time, there was a drought in the land. There was mildew and hail and there was pestilence and things that were happening because of their neglect of obedience to what God had had them have them do. Now, Zechariah wasn't the first prophet on the scene to direct to direct them back to God. It was actually Haggai. And that's in Haggai 1.1. So 23 days after Haggai prophesies, the work on the temple begins. And when Zechariah comes on the scene, the people who had begun working in the temple had yet to return with their whole heart to the Lord. So chapter 1 of Zechariah is getting the people's heart right with God so that they can begin again, not just with the building of the temple, but with their relationship with God. Now in chapter two, what he wants Israel to know is that he's sovereign, that he's under control. He, he gives them this Zechariah, this vision where there's these horns that were raised up and these horns were there to judge Israel. But at the same time, these people had gone further in judgment of Israel than God intended them to go. So he sees this vision of craftsmen that come up. And these craftsmen come and judge the horns of Israel. Now, in, a, in one way, these horns become a craftsman to the previous conqueror. So it was Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and so on. Now, he, the next vision, he looks at Jerusalem and he has it being measured. And he wants them to know, he said, look, I know Jerusalem is a heap right now. It's basically a dump. I'm part of this Facebook group. It's called All Things Abandoned. And basically when people come upon things all over the world that are abandoned or have been left, they take a picture of it and they post it on the group. And I've done it when we went on a family vacation. We were traveling through Utah and there was this big mill. It was probably 100 years old and it was dilapidated, but it was old and I thought it was cool. So I took a picture of it. I posted it on there, but people post things all the time. So 
if they had this back then, you'd go to Jerusalem, you'd take a picture of Jerusalem, you'd post it to the site and say, look how abandoned, look at the dump that this place is. And that's what it was. It, it, it was nothing to look at. People didn't even, even live in the city at the time. They lived outside of it for the most part. The temple was, like I said, partially rebuilt. But he's telling them, look, I'm going to measure this city. And he's measuring it. And they're going, why are you measuring that? There's no way you're going to even be able to fill up the city. Only 50,000 people even returned. And God's saying, no, no, no. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. There's going to be more than enough people, not just to fill this city, but they're going to overflow it. So he's trying to give them encouragement through that. Now in chapter 3, we see Joshua the high priest. And he is a picture of the nation. Now in this picture, Satan is there accusing Joshua. Now, not just Joshua, but the nation as a whole. But he's saying, look, their sins may be as filthy rags, and their sins were compared to basically the menstrual cloths that were used and dirty. He said, look, that's how disgusting your sins are. He also compared it in, uh, compared the same way to a, a dirty diaper. And he said, look, this is what their sins are, but it doesn't matter because he says, Joshua, and more importantly, the nation of Israel, they are a brand plucked from the fire, a stick smoldering in the fire, but I'm going to pull them out because they are valuable. And he's chosen them, and he wants them to know that. Now, they're not deserving of it. And when you look at the chapter, you see that Joshua's not arguing that he's not deserving. He knows it. He knows that Satan's accusations are untrue, but God cleansed him. God cleansed them and God will robe them in righteousness just as he did us. So chapter three is showing the spiritual attacks that are behind what's going on at the time. Now, chapter four, we have another picture where, as I mentioned, the trials that they're having to go through at the time with the Samaritans and just, you know, from within and without, there's all these trials that are going on. They're, they're getting beat down and Zerubbabel is tired He's the civil leader. Joshua is the spiritual leader, the high priest and the governor, and they're exhausted. They're tired. They're probably miserable, but it was because they were doing it in their own strength. They weren't doing it in the strength that God provided. So what the vision was is these two olive trees, these two olive branches, and there is oil going through these olive branches, which is Zerubbabel and Joshua. And God's saying, look, you don't need to do it on your own strength. My spirit is. By my spirit, says the Lord, not by, let me see if I have the quote here. Um, we learn that it's not by might, which is human strength, or by power, mental cleverness, but by the power of the spirit that we are able to accomplish things for the Lord. And that's what he wants them to know in chapter 4. There's a little bit more than that, but that's the, the primary thing in chapter 4. Now, this is, again, Zubral was experiencing the resistance for the temple. But God wanted them to know, look, you can do it. Not of yourself, but with the strength that I provide. And that's the same thing God wants us to know as well. Whenever we try to do things in our own strength, it doesn't turn out as well as it does. If it turns out at all, is if we just let God work through us. Now, chapter 5, two more visions in chapter 5 and one more in chapter 6. And that will conclude the, the visions for the front portion of the book of Zechariah. Now, when it comes to the visions that we've looked at so far... God has given us clear interpretation as to what they mean. He says, this means this, this means this. The angel will ask Zechariah, 
do you know what this means? And he's like, I don't know what it means. He goes, okay, I'm going to tell you what it means. So he tells him what it means. But these last ones, they're not as clear. He gives them a vision, says a couple things about it. And you're like, no more explanation. And that's it. It doesn't say anything. So with that, visions are always subject to interpretation. You know, and a lot of times the meaning can be veiled. It's not always uh, clear to us to begin with. So unless the Lord gives the interpretation like he has in the first half, we don't want to speculate because we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to speculate against God's word. But what we can do is we can look at what the symbolic language is that God uses in the Bible and use that as a basis for other things. There's a theological term called expositional constancy, which I'll never use again. And it basically means there are certain figures that are used consistently in the Bible. If you look at uh, certain metals, uh, gold is for royalty, silver is for redemption, bronze or brass is always for judgment. Um, you can do the same thing with colors and a couple of other uh, numbers and stuff like that. But you have certain things that are always constant. And so if there's no immediate interpretation, interpretation or not a clear one, you can base a little bit off of what's going on on expositional constancy. Otherwise, you pretty much have to say, you know what? I don't understand. God will explain it to me. I'll wait for further information and you kind of move on. And that's what we're sort of going to do with chapter five. I'm going to tell you what it says, um, tell you what I do understand, and we'll move on from there. Now, just because we don't understand something doesn't mean, just because God doesn't explain himself doesn't mean we can't trust it. I, I put a Facebook post yesterday and everybody, like 25 people through this morning, liked it or loved it or whatever, except for one person who I went to high school with, who I was in youth group with. And you can look at it later, not right now. Uh, but he, I think he posted four different comments and he used language in one or two of them. So beware of that. But why? Well, I just can't trust God's word because of this. I can't trust it because of this. Now, none of his arguments held any weight because if you really researched it, you'd see that those things weren't an issue. And I gave him four books he could read if he was really curious about it. But you're not always going to understand everything. No one will. Chuck Smith, who, you know, I thought was a great Bible teacher, he didn't know everything. He admitted, I don't know what this means. He would say, you know, God hasn't revealed it. I'm not going to guess. And we're going to move on to what we know he did explain, and we can trust that. What we do know the things that God has revealed, those are enough to bolster our faith. We don't have to worry about what we don't understand. God has revealed enough that we can trust. So as we proceed to chapters 5 and 6, there'll be a little interpretation uh, with what some of the facts are and a little bit of commentary. But a lot of it I'll have to file under need more info because I just don't know. So with that, we'll begin chapter 5. Verse 1 and 2. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. Now, this is approximately 15 by 30 feet. And whether or not this has relevance or not, this is actually the same dimensions as the holy place in the tabernacle and also the porch of Solomon's temple. Is that relevant? I don't know, but the dimensions were the same. 
I have no interpretation other than that observation for the length of the scroll. It is flying. I'm not sure what that means either. Verse 3. And he said to me, This is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. So in this vision, Zechariah sees this scroll. Now, it doesn't say whether it's open or closed, but since we are told what it says, I'm guessing it's opened. Um, On one side, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 27, or you shall not swear falsely. Um, Every, and I had to check in several commentaries, most people, well, everybody that I read associated that with the third commandment. Uh, as far as uh, swearing falsely by the Lord, not taking his name in vain. And on the other side, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. So then it begs the question, why did God pick these two that are on there? When you look at the first ten, or when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four represent your relationship to God. And number three apparently represents these on the scroll. Uh, some people say this is the central commandment of those four. The last six represent our relationship with man or who our neighbor is. And other commentators would say number eight is central to this. I don't know if that's true or not. It was interesting in the commentary. I'm not sure where they base that off of. But either way, you get one side, the relationship with man. The other side is a relationship with God. If you have a right relationship with God, then your relationship with man should be right. Because if you're loving God with all your heart, you're loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, he says... This curse is going out over the whole land, and it's going to be to judge them. Now, verse 4, the Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy completely both its timbers and stones. So again, these two represent the whole law of God summed in the Ten Commandments. So this law would fly over the land of Israel. There is judgment associated with the scroll or this flying roll, as some uh, translations state it. The vision itself seems to represent the future judgment of the land of Israel as far as those sins are concerned. And we're given no further explanation. However, I believe the next vision is possibly connected, and that's my opinion. I'm going to let you know that up front. So verse 5 through 7 begins the vision of the woman in a basket. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look up and see what is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat a woman. Now, if you read New King James or King James, the basket is what's termed as an ephah or a unit of measurement. And the lead disc is what's called a talent. And if you look in the critical commentaries, which kind of break down the language, they say this is what an ephah was. An ephah was 37 quarts or 9.25 gallons, which is a small basket for a woman to be in. Uh, The cover of lead, a talent, or literally a round piece, is a unit of weight. And Some commentators say it's between 75 and 100 pounds. Others say it's 125 pounds. Either way, it's heavy. So if this woman is in the basket, I don't know if she's a hobbit. She's in the basket. She's got this lead weight on top. 
The idea is she can't push herself out of it. So the basket as an ephah and the lead disc as a unit of measurement or a talent, in the Bible, those are symbols of commerce. Now, verse 8, he said, or the Lord says, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back down into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. So it was open for him to see. Others say she was trying to push herself out. But it was opened so he could see what was in the basket, and then the lid was put right back on so she couldn't get out. Now, the reason the woman is the symbol of wickedness is for no other reason than that uh, wickedness in the Hebrew is in the feminine form and has nothing to do with women being wicked because men are just as wicked. So that will silence all feminists who hear this. Uh, So again, the size of the basket and the woman is probably irrelevant. I think what they represent here is uh, associated with wickedness. It personifies uh, the greed, materialism, and dishonesty for profit that is the result of uh, commercialism. Now, I believe this this could be how the first division connects to this one. Uh, Shady business deals are the stealing and swearing falsely by the name of God or someone saying, oh, I swear to God that I am using a just and honorable weight. Um, what happened was when the Jews returned from Babylon, because they no longer suffered from idolatry. They no longer turned to the balls. They no longer turned to the Asherahs. They no longer turned to all the other false uh, demonic deities that were out there. But uh, many commentators believe what they took away from that was commercialism because most of them that returned, not all of them, were born there. And Babylon was a center of commerce. And so these Jews were able to set up very successful businesses. And because they were in the world, or what Babylon is symbolic of the world, they took some of those business practices with them. And so they came back to the land of Israel with those practices. Uh, But, as I said, the commercialism they brought back was dishonest and often took advantage of those around them. And you can actually see... um, some of the other post-exilic prophets, some of that stuff is hinted at. Um, Babylon is also symbolic of the world's rebellion against God, and that began back in Genesis 10 with Nimrod. And it actually, so it begins in Genesis, and it actually ends in Revelation. Because if you go to Revelation 17 and 18, Babylon being destroyed is highlighted. And what's highlighted the most is its commercialism, which I think is ironic. Uh, well, I guess not ironic. Interesting, because it seems to fit. Um, but when it's destroyed, it says the merchants of the world weep over Babylon because it made them wealthy and successful. So first, he highlights the sin of the land. And then this woman in the basket is actually carried away. Actually, I'll read that right now. In verse 9 through 11, it's carried away. Uh, then I looked up, and there before me were two women... With the wind in their wings, they had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia, to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. So these two in the vision, women with wings, and I don't believe they're angels, it's just women with wings in the vision. The basket is set in a special place in a special house, which seems to imply it's a house of worship, uh, as if commercialism was worshipped as one of the many gods in Babylon. Now, 
Zechariah prophesied to those who returned from the exile. So if God's people did come back to Babylon with materialism as a problem, then this vision definitely speaks to that. It's also going to be a foreshadow of the judgment of Babylon in the future in Revelation. Now, what you should not take from this is that you shouldn't have your own business, and all business is wicked and evil. Uh, There is nothing to say you shouldn't have your own business. My wife has her own. Um, But with your business, you should be honest and ethical in your business practices, as well as you don't let those things run your life, and you don't let the power of money, power and money, that come with business and successful business consume you. Now, as I said, you don't let those things consume you, but anything you do, and it says everything you do, let it be for the glory of God. Everything you do, even if it's running a business, it has to bring glory to God and honor to God in all that you do. Now, that's my wife's goal for her business, is to help touch and minister to other women and reach them. My daughter also has a vision. I'm going to tell you what it is. My oldest daughter has a vision to own a cupcake shop in the future. That's not it. That's not just it. Now, attached to that cupcake shop, she wants to add a water park. I'm not sure how those fit together, but that's what she wants. And she still has it. She's still planning on it. She's even drawn me a picture of it before. Uh, She's asked me about, you know, now how do you run a business if you did it like this? And I'm like, okay, hold on. So I explained to her briefly how things worked at my work. And she was like studiously taking notes, curious how she's going to do it. And she still has that vision. And she still practices baking things at home to get ready for that. But I told her in her plans for that, make sure whatever you're doing, that you're praying to God for direction and that when you're doing it, it's to make sure that you're bringing glory to him. You're doing it because you want to reach other people. And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was happy with that. Anyway, something else. Money is a good servant but a bad master. Uh, I have that written in... 1 Timothy 6, uh, next to that verse in, that I'm going to read to you right now. So we're warned in 1 Timothy 6, and this goes along with um, not letting power and money corrupt you. We're warned, those who want to get rich into, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and, ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now that was the warning, but he gives an exhortation a few verses later in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. And he's not condemning those who are rich and successful, but he's exhorting them to do uh, wise things with their money for the glory of God. It says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So those are exhortations. So I think, in my opinion, um, that was what Israel was suffering from, one of the things when she came back. It appears that that could be what is being talked about, Uh, The first vision of the scroll is the judgment of sin in the land of Israel. The second one, 
appears to be the removal of sin from Israel. Both things that are definitely going to happen in the future. Uh, specifically when Jesus comes back after those judgments and after that removal. Now chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is the next vision, the last vision. It says in verse 1, I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had a red horse, had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Now, the original text says the two mountains, so it's specific about the mountains. Because it says this in the original Hebrew, there are many who assume that the mountains spoken here are the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion. I don't know if that's true, but I do know the mountains are of bronze, and as I mentioned before, bronze is associated with judgment in the Bible. So there is a judgment going to happen. It says these are the four spirits of heaven. Uh, This means these four chariots are actually four angelic beings sent from God. It says in Hebrews chapter... One, I don't remember the verse, that angels are ministering spirits. So it says these are four angelic beings or ministering spirits of heaven. I do not believe they are in any way related to the horses in Revelation 6, um, although that idea is out there. They don't seem to be connected, uh, other than their purpose is similar. But again, there's differences. Now, when it says... Where is it? Oh, verse 6. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the one with the white horses toward the west, and the one with the dappled horses toward the south. Okay, so there is a difference here in the NIV and the King James. King James says in verse 6, The one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them. And the dappled are going toward the south country. So Israel almost universally was attacked from the north. Even if her enemies were from the east, because of the terrain and the landscape and the sea on that side, everybody went up and came down from the north. To the west, there's the Mediterranean. So the only enemies they had to the west were the Philistines who they allowed to remain in the land. The Philistines were eventually wiped out or assimilated into other cultures. And from the south was Egypt. Now, verse 7 and 8 say, When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, Go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, Look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. It doesn't say what they were going out to do. Based on the fact that the mountains are bronze, it seems reasonable that this is judgment. Judgment to who specifically, it doesn't say. As I said, many of Israel's enemies came from the north. It seems like it could very well be Babylon, but at this time, Babylon has already been conquered. Persia is in control. 
Persia will soon be conquered. Greece could come from the north. Uh, the Bible doesn't say. Um, why would God's spirit have rest in the land of the north? It could be because his justice is satisfied in judgment. But I can't tell you that for sure. Uh, the Bible doesn't say. So while the visions in chapter 5 seem to highlight the judgment of the nation of Israel's sin, specifically commercialism, it seems the gist of the vision here is that God is going to judge the Gentile nations for their sins. And beyond that, uh, there's a lot of, I've read a bunch of different commentaries. Not one of them said the same thing. Um, there's a lot of different ideas out there. But this is one that I'm just going to have to ask God later because I don't know uh, what he's speaking of specifically here. Verse 9 through 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown. And set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josadak. The word crown here in Hebrew is the word for a royal crown, an actual crown that a king would wear. What's unusual is they're crowning the high priest because priests were never crowned as kings and kings were never priests. And to tell you just how odd this was, in Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah thought, and the Bible says his heart was lifted up so he was prideful, I can go into the temple. I can offer the sacrifice. And he took a censer into the temple. He was going to try to light uh, the, the censers. He was going to try to do one of the ceremonies. And when he went in there, he became a leper. It says he became a leprous as white as snow, and he, he ran from the temple. And because of that, he was a leper the rest of his life, and his son ended up taking over and co-reigning with him until he died, although he did have one of the longest reigns in Scripture. Uh, he was foolish at the end of his life. He started well. He did not finish well. Uh, but anyway, through the history of Israel, God commanded separation between the religious and civil leadership of Israel. Now... The crowning of Joshua is a foreshadow or a prophecy, a picture of the king priest, Jesus, who's our Messiah. And we're told in 3.8 that Zerubbabel and Joshua were men symbolic of things to come. So when we look at them in the book, we can see that, okay, God says they're symbolic. What is it that they're foreshadowing? And we already talked about some of those things in 3 and 4, but here... Joshua is prefiguring or foreshadowing Jesus who would be our priest king. And in Jesus would be the perfect bonding of church and state, so to speak, which will happen uh, in physical form during the thousand-year reign. Now, verse 12 says, Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Now, we already saw in chapter 3, verse 8, also in 3, verse 8, uh, the branches mentioned there again. And Josiah again, uh, sorry, Josiah, um, Joshua again is called the branch here. Again, prefiguring Jesus, Jesus is coming. Um, and it's also, again, as I mentioned before, a title 
that's brought about in 4.2 of Isaiah, 11.1 of Isaiah, Jeremiah 23.5 and 33.15, where the branch is associated with the Messiah. It's associated with fruitfulness in life. Uh, many people connect it to Jesus as the vine. Uh, he is the vine. He is the branch uh, that we derive our, um, that we abide in. Now, what's interesting here in verse 12, I find it interesting at least. In verse 12, it says, here is the man. Now, in, let me read it from this one. Chapter 6, verse 12, in New King James Version, it says, behold the man. It's the exact same phrase that Pilate uses when he presents Jesus to the mob in John 19.5. Now, I don't know if that's significant, but I think it's fascinating. Where here they're saying, behold the man. And Pilate, unknowingly, because he probably didn't know scripture that well, said, behold the man. And other than the fact I find that's fascinating, I don't have anything else to tell you about that. Um, But it's interesting. Um, Now it says... This priest king, this Messiah, is going to build the temple of the Lord. Now, there's two Jewish, well, there's two primary Jewish thoughts about this. One thought, and this is by the um, the Zionists mainly. Uh, one of them, uh, the ambassador for the nation of Israel to Washington D.C. His name is Avi Grenot or Grenot. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Sorry. Uh, believes that the Messiah will be a political leader who will give the Jews the right to their land and rebuild the temple. There was a prime minister of Israel. I think he's dead now. His name was Shamir. He was prime minister from 83 to 84 and 90 to 92. And this is what he said, because he was waiting for the Messiah. He said, give us a man, whether he be God or devil, if he gives us peace and the right to rebuild our temple, we will receive him as our Messiah. I think that's fascinating. Um, And a lot of times I think they say those things to fly in the face of Christianity because they know what we believe, especially someone like this. Uh, What they said really is a better description of the Antichrist. Daniel 9.27 says, and this is speaking about the Antichrist, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week... He shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, which means it started because the temple was built and they assumed he's the Messiah, the Antichrist. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. So at that three and a half year mark, so he makes the treaty for seven years. They go, this is the Messiah. Uh, He's, you know, there's, there was no peace in the Middle East. And now there is, we're allowed to rebuild our temple. The sacrifices began. Um, I've never been to Israel, but everybody else I've, who's been and has been to the Temple Institute has said they've got everything ready. Everything's set up. They're looking for the red heifer. They always pretend every year to go out and try to lay the cornerstone. There's a big riot. You know, everybody has to calm down again. But they're ready. But they're thinking the Messiah is a political leader and this is how we're going to know it's him. He's going to be able to do all these things. Conversely, There's a group of Hasidic or Orthodox Jews that believe the Messiah will come miraculously from heaven and rebuild the temple himself and not allow them to build it. And because it says in verse 12, he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord, making it seem like he's going to do it all by himself. 
<laughs> so. There's two different thoughts. The Jews are going to be building the temple in the end times. I believe more than likely, and again, I'm not going to swear to this. When Jerusalem is shaken in the tribulation, it's very possible because it says, I believe, a third of the city falls. The the temple may fall with it. It's an apostate temple. It's not the temple that God wanted built. It's a temple he knew would be built. But the temple that God really wants built now is us. It says specifically that we are his temple. We are the temple of God. He's not so concerned about a temple built with stones as he's concerned about our relationship with him building each day. Now, we've already laid the cornerstone if we've placed our faith in Christ It's up to us to allow him to work through us to continue to build that temple. And as we grow closer to him each day, as we spend time in his word, in prayer, in worship, in serving others, that temple continues to grow. That's the temple that he's looking at for us right now. Not concerned with stones. He created the stones. But these things are going to happen in the future. So it's always good to be aware of them, even though we're not going to be here for it. At least we know what's going to happen. Now... Verse 13, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit on, sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. Again, it says the branch will rebuild the temple. And again, this is not the temple Zerubbabel's building. I believe it is a future one. And Again, with this concept of priest and king. With the story I gave you before, it was absolutely unthinkable for these things to happen, for the, the, saint, for the, the two roles to be combined into one. For one thing, it says, he will sit and rule on his throne. Well, there's no place to sit in the tabernacle. And many people believe that he's going to be sitting on a throne in the tabernacle because that's the way it appears. But there were no seats in the tabernacle. There were no seats in the temple. The reason was a priest's work was never done. Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The priest himself was continually offering sacrifices for individuals or for the nations or sacrifices that needed to happen continually with the Old Testament system. If you read Leviticus, with everything that they had to do The tabernacle had to have smelled like a meat house. Uh, The department I hate to go in at work the most is the meat department because it just smells like blood continually. Uh, And I go in there when I have to, but if I don't have to, I avoid it. But, I mean, there was so much sacrificing going on because of everything that needed to be done just to cover our sins or for... uh, just all the different offerings that were going on. The priest's job was never done. He was always, always there. However, the one priest who did finish his ministry was Jesus. Now it says in Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three, 
In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, which was the priestly duty, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's finished it. He's the only one, the only priest who finished his job. No other priest did. Now, it says in verse 14, the crown will be given to Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. So everything that they're going through right now upon the return, upon building the temple, the encouragement they've been given, God has them build a crown because he wants them to look to the future. Now, Satan wants us to look at our past and mourn from it and see, look what you've done in your past. You know, you're not going to be good for anything. And, you know, he wants you to be discouraged by it. God wants you to learn from your past, but don't focus on it. You focus on the future. You focus on the memorials God has put in place for you to remember. Now, the memorial here is the Lord makes it clear that the crown Joshua, the crown that was for Joshua, was a picture for the ruling priest king. And he wanted the people to know that. He wanted them to see that. Look, I know it looks bad, but remember, the Messiah is coming. I'm preparing it. I'm preparing the city. I'm preparing the temple. I'm preparing the land. All these things I'm setting up. So he doesn't want that. And he says, and when you work, do it by my spirit. So he's setting all this up for them. The crown was placed in the temple as a reminder of the coming priest king. Now, when we look... There's two things as Christians that we're asked to do in scripture. We don't have, we're not commanded to do a lot of uh, traditional things to follow. There's two things that God's commanded us to do. One, if we've given our life to Christ, we're asked to identify with Christ. We're asked to do that by baptism. He's given us that command. The other thing is, the other memorial is communion, which we do here once a month. We do that to remember that he died, that he stayed in the tomb three days, and that he rose on the third day. And it says we do that until he returns, looking forward for his return. We do those two things. Those are our memorials to remember what he's done for us, what we have to look forward to. God gave them a crown. He's given us two specific things. There's something I read in, I, when I read eschatology inadvertently, there's a phrase that always comes up that's the mindset for Christians to have, and I've, I've mentioned it up here before. The phrase is, perhaps today. So when you wake up in the morning, you go, you know what? Perhaps today the Lord is going to come. I need to be ready. And, you know, it's not just communion here that you need to take as a memorial sometimes you when you commune with god in the morning he brings those things to your heart to your mind to remember that he's coming back 
to keep you ready, to keep your mind sharp and your heart open and ready for what he has to teach you when you do your devotions. It says in verse 15, those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Now, it's interesting in this last verse of chapter 6. That's as far as I'm going to go today. It says, if. There are some translations that say, when. But this is prophecy. And we already know what the end is. So we know that it's, if they do it, well, they are going to do it. So it's really when. We already know the the end. We've seen Revelation. We can read Revelation. We can see, we have the whole canon of scripture before us. We know what's going to happen. They didn't know then, but we know now. And uh, any Jew who's willing to look at it will also know. Now the elaborate crown spoke of something that would not happen for a long time. And for us, 2,000 years ago, the Jews have been waiting a little bit longer, I guess, or they would think so. Never, never get discouraged if he doesn't come in your timing. Just keep those memorials before you. Keep your face in his word, your eyes on the sky, and your heart in his hands. With that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I know we don't always understand it. You haven't revealed everything to us, Lord, but you've revealed enough to us that we can trust you wholeheartedly. Lord, you wanted Israel to trust you. And they were going through trials on every side and they were discouraged. And Lord, it's easy to become discouraged. But Lord, help us to be faithful in our time with you each day. Lord, your word brings encouragement. And even though there are some things hard to understand, Lord, the encouragement overshadows all those things. Lord, you are faithful. You are sovereign. Lord, even when we're not faithful, you are faithful. Lord, just increase our faith each day. In Jesus' name. Amen.